You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're back in the chapter regarding the Ten Commandments once again today. I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that we uh, covered the first four commands, specifically those that deal with our relationship to God. Um, we talked about how Christians believe that the idols of this world and their fleeting pleasures aren't worthy to be compared to the glories promised for following the resurrected Jesus. So they leave their idols behind with a desire to be fully devoted to him. So we talked about how as God brings his people out of Egypt and <clears throat> begins to establish them as his own people, that he he wants them to understand that he's to be supreme of their life, right? And so uh, that first commandment talks about him being the only God in our life. The second command talks about there being no representation of God. We don't try to depict him in creation. We don't try to uh, bring him into a controllable, manageable format where he becomes one who serves us, uh, which is oftentimes how the, the ancient gods were viewed when they were pictured as these idols. It was uh, a place that you would go to. It was an object that you would go to. Uh, to uh, in hopes of manipulating that God to do what you wanted. We talked about uh, the ways that we talk about God, the words that we use, the, the ways that we express his name uh, ought to be a proper reflection of him, not something that uh, communicates lightheartedness to other people. Um, we talked about the Sabbath day and what it means for us to honor that in the New Testament. We talked about how we ought to have that set aside, prioritized time uh, for him and to worship him and to rest Uh, from our labors of the week. That brings us to uh, the second greatest command, which is how Jesus would refer to this group of commands. We're going to hopefully look at at six of them today. If if we get long-winded, then we'll we'll stop halfway through and, and we'll pick up there next week. But last week, we packaged those first four commands as the greatest command, because when Jesus was pressed in the New Testament and asked, what is the greatest command? He said to what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second greatest command is like it in the sense that we're to love others as we love ourselves. And so um, we're packaging these last six commands under that umbrella of this is what it looks like to love other people. These are expectations that we would have for others to do to us, and therefore we ought to treat others in this manner. Um, Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to pick up uh, in verse 12. So I'll start reading for us there. It says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. These are the commands that are given to God's people. Um, This is what it means to to live in relationship with him and to reflect his character in our interactions uh, with others. Our summary sentence for today, Christians understand the rules of God reveal how sinful we truly are and thus serve as a means of protection when followed by protecting us from ourselves, protecting us from others, and protecting others from ourselves. Christians understand the rules of God reveal how sinful we truly are, and thus serve as a means of protection when followed 
by protecting us from ourselves, protecting us from others, and protecting others from ourselves. For our kids, God's rules are given for our good to protect us and others from the harms of sin. The idea here is that God gives these rules, gives these laws. Uh, We've talked about this partly to temper our sin nature, to help control our sin nature, to give us guidance and direction about what is right and what is wrong and how we should live and act. And uh, many of these rules and laws are meant to protect. They're meant to protect us from ourselves because we are wicked and sinful and evil and left unchecked. We will, we will go uh, in, a, in a wayward way, right? It's also meant to protect us from other people doing things to harm us. It's also meant to protect others from us doing harm to them. The first four commands we said dealt vertically with our relationship to God. The greatest command, how to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. These next six deal horizontally with our relationships to others. The idea being that we cannot love him unless we love others well. First John, and we've talked about how we want to show you the New Testament reflecting these truths of the Old Testament, right? Because it gets a little confusing when you try to figure out, well, which laws of the Old Testament do I keep? Which ones do I not keep? Well, the, the laws that are given to us by Christ, the New Testament, are, are very much uh, these same moral laws of the Old Testament, right? First John chapter 4 verse 20 says, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's the idea of the golden rule that we are called to love others and treat others the ways that we want to be treated. Romans chapter 13, verse eight, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So in some ways, Jesus, the New Testament, simplifies the law for us, right? It, it kind of wraps everything up and packages it real nice with a bow and says, hey, you want to keep these? Here's what you do. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other ways, Jesus makes it more complicated because we might look at these initially on the surface and say, I've kept that, I've kept that, I've kept that, I've kept that. And then Jesus says, no, let's look a little bit deeper to see how you truly haven't kept those commands. Right? So there's a, a simplification that takes place, love God, love others, and then a complication that takes place. Hey, if you think you've kept these, you really haven't. Remember, the purpose of the law is to reveal our need for a Savior, to point us in the direction of living as a holy reflection of Him after we are saved. Right? It starts with showing us a need for a Savior, though, which necessitates that we see really the exhaustive nuances of what it means for us to break each of these laws. Uh, One of the commentaries I read went into great detail talking about how to not do the certain things that are mentioned in the commands, but then how to also do the opposite of these, because that would also be a part of this, right? Not committing adultery would would then imply uh, extreme faithfulness to your wife, um, and so he was kind of going back and forth between the what you don't do, what you must do, and then the heart aspect of what it looks like as well to, to not even think evil thoughts about some of these things. Um, man, when you really start to delve into and really start to meditate, because you, you read this and it's like, man, like this is pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple here in Exodus chapter 20, 
things that we don't do. There's not a whole lot to, to break down and um, really walk through from a sermon standpoint without kind of really digging in deep and building off of these truths. But the more we meditate and the more we reflect, the more we see how guilty we are. Now, I was thinking about how as we continue to grow as a church, um, our checkered past will only increase in regards to looking at these and saying whether we've done these on the surface or whether we have to dig down deeper, right? For some of us, we may approach this from a, a struggle with a pharisaical heart where we look at it and we say, well, I've never, I've never committed murder or I've never committed adultery or I've never done this or I've never done that. Others of us may look at it and say, man, I've done those things. Like on the surface, I've done those things. Others of us have to have the, uh, the, um, that pharisaical perspective and say, hey, I got to push back against the idea that I haven't done these things, right? The tax collector comes into the, uh, to the temple to worship and says, Father, forgive me, I'm a sinner, right? The tax collector knew he had lied and he had stolen. It was very clear and evident to him that he was wicked. Whereas the Pharisee standing there and saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him. Let me encourage you that whether you come today as part of our church with, with more of that uh, holy background, where it's maybe something that you have to dig down deep and see the wickedness that really is in your heart, or maybe you come from a checkered past and you say, hey, it's, it's pretty easy for me to see where I fall short. Man, my hope is that we would all hear a clear declaration of the gospel, that Jesus fulfills the law for us. No matter what level you've broken this, Jesus fulfills it for you, right? Like we could stand everybody up and, and kind of whittle people down um, maybe you've, maybe you've been a part of a large group gathering where like I've done it before, like with our students, we get everybody to stand up when we come back from summer and by process of elimination, we say, how many of you went to the beach? Sit down. How many of you went to an amusement park? Sit down. And like, you're trying to find somebody who didn't do those things. Is there anybody that didn't have a fun summer? Right. We could stand everybody up and say, how many of you have done this? Right. And maybe some of you would sit down because on the surface, boom, you've did this. And then we could say, how many of you have ever thought about doing this? Okay, well, then you need to sit down too, right? Like we could whittle it down, and as we get deeper and deeper into each command, we're going to find that we have broken it. And Jesus would also tell us if you've broken any aspect of it, you've broken all of it, right? And so we all need the hope of the gospel as we look at these commands. But also as we look at these uh, exhaustive nuances of what it means to follow these commands, to follow what Jesus calls us to, it's, it's ongoing growth opportunities for us, right? To keep pursuing him with the Spirit's power. None of us could, be, could look at this and say, I'm keeping these commands fully today, right? So we, we would all need to have some time spent where we look at it and say, I've probably broken, broken every one of these laws at some point in my life. But then the flip side is, as we are maturing and growing in Christ, we also need to look at it and say, I'm still breaking these commandments on a regular basis. I'm still breaking the law on a regular basis. And there's, there's room for growth. There's room for maturity. There's room for sanctification for the Holy Spirit to lead me and guide me into holiness. Let's jump in and look specifically at these six commands today and what it means for our life. Number one, be known for obedience. Be known for obedience. Verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Be known for obedience. The truth that flows from this command is that we must learn respect, honor, and submission to the first authority in our life in order to properly submit to authorities later in life. 
And what do I mean by first authority? Well, the first authority that you learn as a, as a newborn is the authority of your, your mom and your dad over you, right? Like that's the first authority that God places into our life. Before we're ever aware of him, we're aware of mom and dad, right? And so he calls us to obedience to that first understanding of authority. And then it's, it, it flows deeper in the New Testament that it's not just the authority of our parents that we have a responsibility to be submitted to. It's all authorities that God places in our life. It says in Ephesians 6, 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the disciplines and instruction of the Lord. But then it goes into immediately talking about bond servants being obedient to their masters, right? It's, it's an idea here that we have a responsibility to be submitted to the authorities that God places over us, right? The New Testament also talks about uh, the governmental authorities that are placed over us and our responsibility to be obedient to them. Uh, you, you, you could also make a, a strong case from this passage about just the, the responsibility to be obedient to the bosses that are placed over us in our workplaces, right? I think that the, the commandment given in Exodus 20 is meant to set the tone for other authorities that come into our life later. Our kids need to learn to be obedient to their parents so that they can learn obedience to our Heavenly Father and to other authorities that He places over us throughout our life. So kids, listen to me. Like One of the reasons that, that you have a responsibility to be obedient to mom and dad is so that you can be obedient to Jesus as you continue to get older. Right, like that—that's that's what—that's the learned behavior is that I'm to submit myself to the authorities that are placed over me, honor, respect, submission to the first authority in life to properly submit to other authorities later in life. We show respect and obedience to God by how we obey authorities placed over us, and it starts with how we treat our parents. Now, what does it mean to honor your your mother and your father? Right, so. This commandment applies to all of us here today, okay? So every kid that's with us this morning needs to dial in and listen because this one's specifically for you. But then every adult that's in here too, this commandment continues to apply to you as well. What does it mean to honor your father and your mother? What does it mean to, to do what the scriptures tell us to do here? Well, the idea is to give proper weight and respect to the parental position, to give proper weight. That's what it means to honor your mother and your father, to give them the proper weight, the proper respect, the proper honor that they're due, to give them the weightiness that is correct based on the position they hold. Now, that position changes, right? Like the position that we have with our mom and dad evolves over time, right? Like we don't, we don't stay being obedient to our parents uh, like we were at the age of five when we're the age of 35, right? The, 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 the relationship changes. It evolves and, and looks different over the years. But I think that there's still a call for us in adulthood to honor our father and our mother well. So for our kids who are still in that early stage of life, I mean, you have a responsibility to be obedient to your parents in the ways that we think of typically as obedience, right? To, to listen to them. To, to be careful in the ways that you speak back to them, right? So kids, I know sometimes it can be super challenging uh, when you're frustrated and you don't want to do what your parents tell you to do, to, to use your tongue as a weapon to fight back, 
right? To, to resist what mom and dad are telling you to do, to want to do it differently. The attitudes that we show to our parents, kids, are super important. The Lord would have those to be uh, honoring type attitudes. Even when we're called to do something that we don't want to do, that we do it with submission, we do it with uh, obedience. The challenge for us is to see that respect and honor and, and obedience applies to uh, authorities like our parents, but then even later in life, authorities that we disagree with, and that it's super important that we're still willing to follow through with this command to be obedient. That means that disobedience isn't just a part of growing up, right? Like I hear, I hear parents sometimes, particularly at the age that I work with at Trinity, talk about how well, they're middle schoolers, so they're just going to be that way, right? Like they're just going to be defiant or they're just going to be disobedient. It's just a part of growing up. Now, there's certainly challenges that come with growing up, right? Because as a child begins to grow and develop, there becomes this desire to come out from underneath mom and dad, to be liberated from that and to be able to make choices and decisions and, and provide direction for their life without mom and dad doing all of that for them. But there's still a responsibility for the, for the child to, to be acting like the, the five-year-old even as they turn 15, 16, 17 while they're under the, the roof of their parents' house, right? So kids, as long as you're living with your parents, there's a responsibility to be fully obedient to their rules and laws even if you don't agree with them. And then after you come out from underneath your parents' care, that, that relationship starts to shift and change a little bit maybe, But it still involves the ways that we speak to our friends about our parents, right? Like this is, this, this is something that becomes more contagious and more of a temptation when you get into those early high school years and you're hanging out with your, your friends and uh, maybe your friends' parents do things this way, right? And so it becomes very easy for you to become disparaging about your own parents and what they won't let you do. Kids, let me, let me cautious you to, caution you to be, to be guarded against negatively talking about mom and dad to your friends. Super big temptation to do that, particularly when you're frustrated with the rules and the regulations they're setting for you. The Bible would tell us to honor our parents, and one of the ways that we honor our parents is how we talk to our friends about our parents. I think the Lord would have us to, to, to speak respectfully of them, to honor them, even if we disagree with them, to honor them. Why? Because there's going to be times when your boss tells you to do things that you don't want to do, and you can get fired for talking negatively about him, right? Mom and dad aren't going to fire you if they find out that you went to a sleepover and told everybody how, how bad your parents are because they won't let you do this and this and this. You're not going to get fired from mom and dad, right? You, you're going to have some discipline maybe if they find out about that. You're not going to get fired from them. Your boss finds out that you're talking negatively about him, and you might get fired. And then all of a sudden, you're trying to figure out, how do I, how do I help care for my family because I just lost my income? Right? There's, there's reasons why God puts us in the confines of our mom and dad to help teach us lessons we're going to need to know as we get older and grow up. And I think there's times where God wants us to have disagreements with our mom and dad because we're going to have disagreements with other authorities in our life later too. We need to learn how to manage those. So kids, if you're still listening to me and hearing me, Honor your parents in the ways that you talk about them to others, even when you disagree with them. This continues to grow and develop as we get older. We should still uh, seek wisdom from our parents. The younger we are, we heed the wisdom. When we're older, we, we seek the wisdom still to show honor for them. Man, for those that are in middle school and high school that are sitting with us, one of the ways that you can honor your parents is to talk to them when they try to talk to you. 
talk to them when they try to talk to you, right? Like, I, like I'm already preparing for the fact that my kids like talk 90 miles an hour, like right now at this age. And it's probably at times very frustrating. Like, can you just be quiet? Can you just quit talking, right? But I know there's coming a day where Lauren and I will sit and say, how do we get our kids to talk? You know, because as they get older, they start to shut down and they start to keep things to themselves and they don't want to express it. For our kids that are in middle school and high school, you're in that stage of life where it's going to be tempting more and more to stop talking to mom and dad. Let me tell you, you honor your parents by talking to them, by going to them for wisdom. Newsflash, they were your age at one point. They know the things that you're going through, right? Like if Jesus can say, I've been tempted in every way that you were without sin. I know what you're going through. I'm a sympathetic high priest. Mom and dad are sympathetic parents too, right? Like they know what you're going through. Talk to them. When they try to talk to you, talk back to them. It's how we can honor our parents well. And then for those of us that are later in life and our parents are getting older, there's a responsibility for us to prioritize them and to care for them, right? The scriptures talk about one of the ways that we honor our parents well later in life is we take care of our parents, right? We, we set ourselves up in such a way where we can provide care for them. They provided care for us for so long. It's now our time to provide care for them. It's one of the ways that we honor them well. Again, some of the New Testament echoes of, of where this plays out Uh, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. We read Ephesians 6, Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. There's responsibilities for the parents, right? Like fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. But children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Let Let me have you contemplate just for a minute. Where have you failed in this? Right? Like, where have you failed to honor your parents well? For some of you, it happened today. For some of you on the way to church, for some of our kids, you failed to honor your parents well. For those of us that are older, maybe it's been over the past couple of weeks, we failed to honor our parents well. Let us all be reminded of this truth. We should be known for obedience. We should be known for the honor that we give to our parents, and that needs to translate to how we obey the other authorities placed in our life. Because maybe you weren't disobedient to your parents this week. Maybe you were disobedient to your boss, to the government, to other authorities that were placed over you. As Christians, we are to be known for obedience. Number two, be known for gentleness. Be known for gentleness. What are we told in in the next command? We're told that uh, murder is against God's law. Murder is against God's law. The truth that flows from this is that we must learn to control our emotions when we are treated wrongly, and when situations fail to meet our expectations. We must, learn, uh, we must learn to control our emotions when we're treated wrongly, and when situations fail to meet our expectations. That's where, that's where murder comes from, right? The, the act of killing another human being flows from emotional responses because there's been wrong treatment or situations have failed to meet expectations that we had for it. We're to be known for gentleness as believers. God is the giver and taker of life. He's the source of the greatest justices that we long for. It prohibits us from acting on feelings to harm others. This command reminds us that life is sacred and it cannot be jeopardized lightly. Genesis 9-6 is uh, the passage that takes place after um, the flood. And it's the institution of capital punishment, right? Where if you take... The, the life of an image bearer of God, which all human beings are, 
right? Then there is a right to take your life in response for it. You have, you, have, you have damaged the image of God, therefore you are to experience the consequences for that. Why? Life is precious. God is the giver and taker of life. It prohibits the intentional, premeditated killing of an individual. Now, as we get deeper into Exodus, we'll find that there's uh, further discussions about, well, what about this situation? What about this situation, right? Uh, in Exodus uh, 22, verse 2, there's the, the introduction of, okay, self-defense would be okay, right? Somebody breaks into your house and you've got you've to take measures to protect yourself or your family. You're not going to be held against the law in the same way that you would if you uh, got mad at a coworker, left work, went home, got a weapon, went to his house and took his life right? Totally different scenarios there. And so the law begins to introduce these differences and, and how to understand those differences. Um, accidents are talked about in Exodus chapter 21. Well, what if it's, it's not intentional, it's accidental? How does the, how does the law respond to that? Um, war, punishment, like, is it, is it wrong to go to war? Well, Scripture speaks to that too, that, that there's uh, the right to, to, to go to war to take life in order to protect life right? Uh, there's punishment that gets applied to uh, those who have, have taken life, right? So there, there's all kinds of discussions about it. What's at the root and the, the heart of this command, though, is that we have to control our emotions when we're treated long, wrongly, when situations fail to meet our expectations, that we deal with our anger to avoid letting it progress to more serious manifestations, that we don't allow it to, to, to gain a root in our life where we fester with it and it begins to flesh itself out. It's wrong to have the thoughts, Jesus would tell us, right? Like it's wrong to hate your brother or sister because that hatred could potentially lead to this type of act. Here's the good news. It's forgivable, right? Like it's forgivable. If you ever allowed your hatred and your emotions to get to the point where you took somebody else's life, Right? For some of us, we would say, man, like that's the worst thing you could ever do. Right? It's the worst thing you could ever do. And yet the gospel says it's forgivable. Right? As Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's being murdered, he's being murdered, Jesus is saying, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As Peter preaches to act in Acts chapter 2, he's preaching to the people who crucified Christ. Right? That they, they are guilty of murdering the Savior. And their, and their response is, okay, we get it. We did it. What do we need to do? Right? For us, we might have a long laundry list of things you got to do to fix that, right? I mean, you killed Jesus, right? Like, you don't just get off for that. What's Peter's response? I mean, you repent and be baptized and you can be saved. You can be forgiven. It's still, it's still it's a crazy thought for me that Paul was killing Christians and then began to plant churches. Like, I can't imagine the, the time frame that was needed before you trusted Paul to come in and, and preach to you, right? Like, is it a setup? Is he just going to kill us when we get there? Because that's what he's been doing, right? He's been finding Christians and killing them. Paul was forgiven of his sins. Murder's not higher up than any of these other things that we're looking at. It's forgivable. It's the gospel. Is that Jesus didn't, didn't take what could have been a hateful situation and respond with, with killing. He fulfilled the law. He controlled his emotions. As he's dying on the cross, there is no retaliation from him, right? He controlled his emotions in ways that we cannot do perfectly, making it possible for us to be forgiven of the worst sins that we can imagine. Be known for gentleness. 
Matthew 5, 21 through 22, again, labels those of us who never commit murder as still guilty of breaking this if we have hateful thoughts towards others. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, bits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Lots of like evil stuff mentioned there. Fits of anger fits right into it though. Right? So some of us may never pick up a weapon and harm another individual to the point of death, but some of us express fits of anger regularly, whether it's towards our spouse or towards our children or, or towards coworkers or neighbors or friends. And that's not appropriate either. It's a violation of the command, right? We're to love others. We're to treat others the ways that we want to be treated. And when we're not doing those things, we are failing at holding the law. Remember, the law is meant to show us our need for a savior. So we're not approaching this saying, but I want to be viewed as keeping this command. No, like we need to open our hearts to see where do I not keep this command? Where does the Holy Spirit still need to work on me? So don't look at it and say, man, I'm, I'm, I was guilty of that one and now I'm guilty of this one. Like, like, we're all guilty of all of them. It's just a matter of when do we whittle it down enough for you to see, boom, there's where I am. That's where I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of all of it. It's just a matter of figuring out where it is we're guilty so that the Holy Spirit can work and move and make changes in us. Learning to control our emotions when we're treated wrongly, when situations fail to meet our expectations. Number three, be known for purity. Be known for purity prohibits adultery. Can't commit adultery and be consistent with the ways of God. The truth that flows from this is we must learn to embrace the relationship status given to us at any given time with the appropriate expression within that status. We must learn to embrace the relationship status given to us at any given time with appropriate expression within that status. What does that mean? Some of us are called to singleness right now. Some of us are within marriage, right? We all have some type of relationship status, and God gives us guidelines for how to operate within that, right? For those of us that are not married yet, there's a call to complete purity until God blesses us if he chooses to do so with a spouse, For those of us that have a spouse, they have a husband, they have a wife, there is a responsibility to be pure within that marriage as well, right? There's a way to express the love appropriately, and that's to remain confined to the marriage bed, to not go outside of that marriage relationship. We're to embrace the relationship status, and we're to express appropriately within that status as well. Our actions of love and marriage are meant to reflect gospel purity, gospel faithfulness of the relationship between Christ and the church, right? So for, for, our, for our young men and young women who maybe aren't married yet and are seeing an increase in temptation in, in this way, that the Bible tells us part of the motivation for us remaining pure is so that we are a good reflection of the gospel, Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Right? The, 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 the interaction between husband and wife pictures the, the, the relationship between Christ and the church. It's part of why we're motivated to stay pure, because we mess up that picture of the Christ and church relationship when we're not faithful to each other. 
We need that. We need that purity. We need that to be a good picture to the world of the gospel. Marriage acts are meant to be the super glue between spouses. And, and many of you have played with glue at times where it was the wrong time and it was the wrong place. And what does it do? It creates a mess, right? It just creates a mess when glue's not used appropriately. It's meant to be a super glue between a husband and a wife. And when we harbor sinful thoughts and imaginations about life with a person who isn't our spouse, we're in violation of this command. The marriage bed is to be sacred. We don't defile it. Purity was meant to be so serious in the Hebrew culture that death ensued if you violated the marriage covenant. Le- Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22. Man, it, that was a deterrent for adultery, I'm sure, if they were carrying that out appropriately. That it wasn't just something that you said, well, that's just going to happen. Like, that's just the, the day and age we live in. No, it was like, hey, that's a violation of the marriage covenant. Picture of Christ and the relationship with the church, the, the relationship of God to his people, like that deserves death. Very serious in their culture. Ought to be as serious today probably as well. Both the actions and the thoughts are to reflect purity in ways we engage and even think about those around us, right? Like it's not just that we're prohibited from acting on these thoughts. We're not to have these thoughts that are impure towards other people. In fact, we're not even to joke about it. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Can't even be named amongst us is what it says. We're to be known for purity. It rules out inappropriate intimacy at all levels, right? So, uh, if, you're, if you're married, there shouldn't be flirting with the opposite sex, right? There shouldn't be emotional support gained from the opposite sex outside of your spouse. It mandates that the husband and the wife work really hard at their relationship so that it keeps everything pure within that relationship. That there's not a temptation to step out of that relationship. When we violate it, it commits wrong towards ourselves. First Corinthians six eighteen says it's a sin against our own body. First Thessalonians four one through eight talks about it being a sin in violation against somebody else's body. We're to we're to see that we're called to something different. Matthew five twenty seven and twenty eight. Jesus talks about adultery is not just the act; it's the thought of Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. When we step away from this command and we violate this command, it's an act of selfishness. Think about David, right? David and Bathsheba. When he steps into that adulterous relationship, it's because he stops, he stops sacrificing and serving with his life, right? He stops serving and sacrificing and giving his life to others When he did that, he opened himself up to this sin. Where was he supposed to be? He was supposed to be at battle. Scriptures are very clear that it was a time when the kings were at battle with their armies and the king of Israel is not. He's taking time off. He's taking a day off. He's taking a pattern off and it leads him into sin. It's an act of selfishness. The expectation is that we'd be willing to follow in full obedience the guidance given to us regarding our love relationships for singles and for marrieds. If we're a Christian, we yield ourselves, we submit ourselves to whatever God says about relationships. For, for our singles, uh, the Bible says you don't get to marry somebody who's not a believer, which means you, you shouldn't really be dating them either, right? Like, like we're not supposed to be unequally yoked. 
We're not supposed to have light and darkness trying to mix. It doesn't work, right? I was sharing with our kids at Trinity this week that um, in the Old Testament, it prohibited marrying people from other nations, not because there was an issue that God had with skin color or cultures or anything like that. It was a religious decision. It's you don't get to marry people from other nations because they worship other gods and they'll lead you astray. If we're Christians, we yield to God's guidance about relationships. The New Testament echoes this side, but here's the, here's the thing. Just like murder, it's forgivable, right? When we fail in this area, when we fail in our thoughts, and when we fail in our actions, and even if we're so egregious that we step outside the marriage bed and into someone else's, we can be forgiven of this. We can be forgiven of this. John 8 talks about this, right? When the, when the woman who's brought before Jesus, and they want to stone her because from the pharisaical side of things, we've never broken this command, but she has. Let's kill her. Jesus says, cast the first stone if you're, guilt, if you're not guilty, right? Go ahead and do it if, if you've never done anything like this in your own life. Then what does he tell her? Go and sin no more. There, there's a rightness that's achieved in that relationship with her after that whole thing plays out. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the law. You don't get in if you've done these things, right? But verse 11 says, such were some of you. But what happened? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God forgivable. That's the hope of the law now, right? The law puts us under the weightiness of how we can't keep it. And then the gospel says, you know what? Jesus did it for you. Jesus fulfilled it for you. Jesus kept it for you. You can be forgiven of every misstep, every way you've broken it. On the surface where it's obvious to the depths of your heart where nobody else knows about it, you can be forgiven of it. Be known for purity. Number four, be known for hard work. Be known for hard work. What are we told? That we can't steal, right? That we're not to steal from others. The truth that flows from this, we must learn to connect the resolution for our needs and desires with the effort and intentionality we put forth in honest work, right? The resolution for when we need something or want something, when we desire something, is to work hard and work intentionally for it, not to try to manipulate and take something that's not our own not to try to seize something with dishonest gain, right? To instead see that, okay, I want this or I need this. My family needs this. My family wants this. I'm going to work hard for it. I'm going to pick up a second job if need be so that we can have that, right? We're not going to manipulate the system to try to find a way to cheat and get it for ourselves. There's small ways of stealing that we can think about, right? Like we could manipulate things with our taxes that are illegal, uh, resumes. Um, it was probably two decades ago where, uh, the head coach at Georgia Tech, George O'Leary, had achieved great success at that institution coaching football, and he got a call from Notre Dame, his dream job to come coach there, right? And so they had a press conference, they hired him, everything seems great, he's so excited. Second day on the job, he's fired. Why? Because somebody looked at his resume and said, you didn't play football for three years at New Hampshire. Well, that's not really a big deal, is it? Well, he put it there for a reason, helped him get a job in the past, which helped him get a job that led up to where he was there that day. And they said, you know what? We don't have time for that. Lost his dream job, day two of the job, because what? He had lied on his resume 
an innocent move in his mind to get a job, and it cost him the job that he really wanted. These are small ways that we justify stealing, right? False claims, uh, time cards where maybe we report wrongly the time that we've worked, not working a full day. Some of us are guilty of stealing from our employers because we don't work the whole day, right? We, we play and we mess around and, and we don't really fulfill what we're called to do. Um, plagiarism, we have to drill this into the hearts of our students at school where, hey, you're stealing somebody else's work and taking credit for it yourself. Insurance fraud, copyright violations. These are, these are things that fit into the violation of what it means to steal. Theft is failure to trust his provision to place an assault on his providence for others, right? Like I hadn't thought about this really until I was studying it this week that we steal, and that's an expression that we don't trust God's providence, but we're also attacking God's provision to somebody else when we take from them, right? God had provided for them, and we went in and took it from them, right? We're attacking God's providence and his provision on both ends. We're saying, God, you haven't given me enough. We're also saying, God, I think you've given them too much, and I'm going to take it, right? It's an attack on the provision that he gives to others as well. We need to remember ultimately that God is the provider of our daily needs. He responds to the faithful efforts we put forth ourselves to provide too, right? Like he is the one, John did a great job of pointing, at, pointing us to this several weeks ago from Matthew chapter six. We don't have to worry about God providing for us. We're, we're better than the other aspects of creation that he provides for. We trust him. But then there's also this responsibility where we're supposed to work ourselves, right? To, to work, to provide and trust that God's gonna give us the fruit of that labor. Ephesians chapter four, verse 28, what does it tell us? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What's the opposite of stealing? It's working hard, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. We're to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work with our hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Those are the New Testament echoes for what this command says. We don't steal. What do we do instead? As Christians, we work hard. We work really hard, not just so we can take care of ourselves, but so we can give to others, so we can be generous. When we work hard, it frees us to trust in God who gives graciously what we need so we can avoid taking forcefully or even deceptively what isn't ours. We work hard with our hands. We're to be good stewards with what God bestows to us. We're to rejoice over what he provides. And we're to resist the need to take more. Kind of the opposite of stealing is stewardship, right? Stealing says I don't have enough. Stewardship says let me see what God's given me and how I can use it. It's the opposite of stealing. It's a different mindset. Stealing focuses on what we don't have. Stewardship focuses on what we do have and how it's enough and how it can be used for his glory. Be known for hard work as a believer. Number five, be known for truth. Be known for truth. We can't bear false witness. can't bear false witness against your neighbor. The, the truth that flows from this is we must learn to express truth in every situation of life, particularly when it comes to the ways we cast light on others. What's at stake here in this, in this command at face value? It's a, it's a legal testimony that was at play here, right? Like, Think about all the uh, forensic type tools that we have today that can help prove whether somebody's guilty or not. Man, I love the fact that Trinity, we got video cameras like all over the campus. So when I have a kid come in and, and he's giving me his false testimony, right? I just look at him and say, hey, I'm about to go look at the camera. Like if you're lying, 
man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pop you with, with the harshest discipline that I can. I don't, I don't have any room for lying. So don't trick me here. Don't be deceptive towards me. I got video cameras. I'm just trying to save some time and let you be truthful to me because it does take time to go look at the video. But don't think I won't go look at the video, right? So I tell them like, hey, be honest with me because I got other things, other tools that I can use beyond your testimony. But back in this day, they didn't, right? Like they didn't have video cameras. They didn't have the tools that we have. They couldn't check fingerprints. So when you had something stolen from them, if you had three or four people that could come forward and say, hey, I know they did it. And that's what you had to go off of. So the testimony of people was super important. You know how they helped weed out the false testimonies? Is that if it was a, a punishable offense by death, you had to throw the first stone. Like People will back down from a lie pretty quickly when they realize they're the ones that have to apply the punishment. Right? It's easy for a kid to come lie to me in my office, go back to math class, and not think about it again. He doesn't see the punishment. He doesn't have to call the parents. Right? He didn't have to have the conferences that ensue from his testimony. And this time they did. Right? Oh, you, you say this happened? Great, then you're going to be a part of the, the punishment. Because if you're lying, we want you to feel it for years to come that you punish this person for something you knew was a lie. The call was to be truthful in the legal testimonies. How we talk about others and how we help form a reputation for them in the minds of others is at stake here. We're to be truthful, we're to be honest. We're called to reflect the attribute of truth from God our Father, to not act like Satan, who's also called a father in the New Testament, right? Jesus says when you lie and when you deceive others, you're acting like your father, the devil. Remember those two seeds that are talking about in Genesis, right? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Jesus says, I'm going to preserve the seed of the woman, right? There's going to be a separation. Some of you are going to stay in your sins because you follow after the devil. Some of you are going to be rescued back to me. He says, Based on how you live out your life, truth or lies really shows who your father is. This command would include prohibitions of gossip and slander. It was taken serious. How does it talk about it in the New Testament? Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Not just an Old Testament command. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, right? If we're, if we're truly being conformed to the image of Christ, we stop lying. We start being known for truth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These things are to be put away if we're truly a believer. Lastly, be known for contentment. Be known for contentment. Just like stewardship is the opposite of stealing, contentment is the opposite of coveting. It says in verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Right, this isn't an exclusive, exhaustive list. He's just listing off some examples of things they would have been typically guilty of coveting, and then he just wraps it up and says, if there's anything else that you like of your neighbors, don't think about wanting that either. Right, it's all coveting. The truth that flows from this is we must, we must learn to accept the life God has given us with all the blessing and challenges he entrusts to our care. We must learn to accept the life God has given us with all the blessings and challenges he entrusts to our care. 
We don't think about this often when we're tempted to covet, but there's probably people that are tempted to covet the life that we're discontent with. You ever thought about that? Like, we are so oftentimes prone to think about what we don't have, and we view other people as having all of it, right? Like, they've got the house that we want, they've got the car we want, they've got the spouse we want, they've got the kids that we want, they've got this that we want, this, 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 that whatever your neighbor's is, you want it. And I can guarantee you there's somebody else that's being tempted to, to covet your life right? That they're looking into your life saying, I wish I had that. And we're so blinded by what we don't have, we fail to give thanksgiving and rejoice over what we do have. Contentment. The only command that deals with the heart issue solely, right? It's something that you can't really measure. You can't really enforce it outwardly. It may or may not even ever express itself outwardly, right? It's, it's a command that we're prohibited to think about doing wrong. It involves breaking the first command, really. If you think about the first command, no other gods before me, and this last command, they really serve as bookends that are dealing with the same issue. Are you content and willing to trust and serve the one God alone? I think they're intentionally placed that way, right? Like they don't build in severity in our minds, right? Like you might cap off the Ten Commands with don't commit adultery and don't commit murder because those are the big ones, right? Maybe put coveting first because that seems like a light one. He wraps everything up with, and the 10th commandment is, don't covet. Right? And you're like, well, that's kind of anticlimactic. No, it's like a bookend to the first one. Right? Do, you, do you believe and trust the one true God or not? Are you willing to worship him only? And are you willing to trust whatever he gives to you? Or are you going to constantly be discontent wishing you had a different God who gave you different things? It involves desiring wrongfully what others have, wishing others didn't have what you don't. And it really opens the door to breaking all the commands. Think about Ahab in the Old Testament. King Ahab wants this vineyard that's near the palace, right? He's got all kinds of vineyards, but he really wants Naboth's vineyard. He says he wants it so bad that that he's really guilty of coveting it. And he pouts when he tries to buy it. And Naboth says, can't do it. Not going to do it. And so Jezebel goes and takes it for him, right? She finds some false testimony so they can have Naboth killed and then they steal it for themselves, right? All kinds of commands are being broken here. Where does it flow from? He coveted something that wasn't his. If we're not careful, we grow angry towards the other person who has what we want. We grow bitter towards God because he haven't, hasn't given it to us. Think about uh, Solomon when he has the two, the two moms, right? One who loses their baby, the other one who still has theirs, and, and they're, they're, they're fighting over whose baby it really is, right? The one mom doesn't really care about having the other's baby. She just doesn't want the other mom to still have hers because she doesn't, right? It's really just rooted in covetousness. I'm upset that I had this, this terrible night where I lost mine and you didn't. I want you to lose yours too. The sin of covetousness. It's like when you have your kids who are completely absent-minded about a certain toy, and then the sibling goes and gets it, and all of a sudden it's like, that's my greatest toy ever. Like, why are you playing with that? I, I, was, I was about to pick that up and play with it. You knew I was about to pick that up and play with it. Give it to me, right? Like, we've all seen that play out for those of us that have multiple kids. It's a toy that nobody cares about until somebody cares about it, and then everybody cares about it, right? We're the same way, though. Just like Aiken, Joshua seven twenty one says, he coveted the things of Jericho, even though they were prohibited. And he took them, and it led into deeper sin. Contentment is positive fulfillment of this command, to trust God for what he has given us as the all-wise provider who knows what we need. Contentment is wanting, listen to this, and we'll hit application to be done. 
contentment is wanting what God wants for me more than what I want for myself. Think about that statement. Contentment is wanting what God wants for me more than what I want for myself. That's where Paul reached in Philippians 4, where he says, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I find myself in. My joy is not circumstantial. I'm content in every and all circumstances, highs and lows. Why? Because I want what God wants for me more than what I want for me. When we reach that type of point, that's where we're getting set free from the sin of covetousness. We want what God wants for us. The application, number one, hope. Man, my hope is that you're hearing these commands and feeling like a failure, because you are. And the hope is that Jesus has done all of this for you, right? Like, like if, if you walk out of here thinking, man, I'm not as bad as I thought. Like, as Adam was kind of rattling off these commands, I'm thinking, you know what? I do those pretty good. Then you've, you've missed it, right? Like, you should be at this point going, I'm a terrible person, right? Like, I don't do anything right, because that's where the law is supposed to leave you. So if you're, if you're feeling that way, don't look around going, I'm the only one who feels this way here. We should all feel that way. So if you do feel that way, you're the tax collector who gets it, who says, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because the hope is that Jesus has kept the law. He bore the punishment and he saved us from the condemnation. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says he kept the legal requirements of the law. Galatians 3, 10 through 14 says he was cursed on the tree for you. Romans 8, 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? As we work through the law, we'll find that breaking the law required a restitution of what was lost and a punishment equivalent to the intended harm, right? So if you committed an accident, right, like you did something by accident, you just had to, you had to provide restitution, but you weren't punished for it, right? If you attempted to do something wrong and you were not successful, you didn't have to provide restitution because you weren't successful, but you were punished for it. Right? So maybe you attempted murder, but you didn't commit the murder. You would still be punished for the intent of the act, but you didn't have to provide like the restitution for it. But for those who were intentional and successful, they had to provide restitution and they got punishment. And that's where we are, right? We are intentional in our breaking of God's law. Not only do we deserve punishment, there's restitution that needs to still happen. There's got to be perfect obedience, and Jesus accomplishes both for us. He's perfect for us. He gives the restitution. He keeps the law, and he dies in our place. He serves as the curse on our behalf. The faith piece, number two, is that we start to see his laws as not burdensome. We see them as a means of protecting us, that we can serve him and others well. Let me encourage as we leave today to meditate on these truths, to meditate on these laws, to see where you've broken them, not to see them as a way to encourage yourself of how good you're doing, but to see them as a way where you've missed the mark, to use it as a way to worship Jesus because he didn't miss the mark. He did it for you. He did it for you. To use this instead as a way to say, you know what? I want to come underneath this. They're good for me. They're not burdensome. They're good. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that although we are guilty of not honoring our parents well, we are guilty of murder. We are guilty of adultery. We are guilty of stealing. We are guilty of lying. We are guilty of coveting. We have done all these things and more. Lord, we are thankful that Jesus came and lived perfectly. It's as though he lived our exact life and every bad choice we made, he made the right choice. 
God, we're thankful that we can stand before you as perfect sons and daughters today, and it has nothing to do with the last week or this week. It has everything to do with what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus came and lived as a man and he did it perfectly and then he died in our place and then he rose again and he's given us that hope that we too will be with you one day. Lord, I pray that we would express our faith in those truths by seeking to live obediently to you now through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would seek to come underneath these, these commands that we see, particularly in the ways they're listed for us in the New Testament, the ways they're simplified. Love other people the way that we want to be loved. The way that they're complicated, Lord, help us never to be content that just because we're not doing it outwardly that we're okay and that we've achieved some type of level of satisfaction with you. Lord, help us to see that you're still working on our hearts and that you're not content until you have all of us. Lord, help us to be content in you. Help us to want what you want for us more than what we want for ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.